Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. On this episode of JOSPT Insights, we are teaming up once again with our sister journal, JOSPT Cases, to cover a fantastic case covering rehabilitation for a patient after their anterior cervical discectomy infusion, for which there is surprisingly little literature in regards to optimal rehabilitation guidelines. Specifically today, we're covering an article entitled, Early Initiated Multimodal Postoperative Physical Therapy Program for Anterior Cervical Discectomy Infusion, a case report with two-year outcomes. The authors on this study are physical therapists Dr. Joseph M. Darian, Dr. Jessica Evaristo, Dr. Justin M. Lance, and the participating surgeon in this case, Dr. Jeffrey C. Wang, MD. Drs. Darian, Evaristo, and Lance are all joining us today. All three therapists have their board specialties in orthopedics. Dr. Darian is an associate professor at the University of Southern California. Dr. Lance is also an associate professor and director of the Spine Fellowship Program at USC. Dr. Evaristo was under Dr. Lance's mentorship during this case, and after finishing her orthopedic residency, now practices at the UCSF Physical Therapy Faculty Practice. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. Chris Hughes, who is the editor of JOSPT Cases... Chris, first of all, thank you for being here. What was special about this case and what made you, when you read this, want to publish this in JOSPT cases? I really thought it was a good example of a thoroughly written case report on a common procedure that not only, you know, new clinicians would benefit from, but older clinicians could read and gain something from. So they're just really good at singling out thought processes. There's not a ton in the literature about Clinical practice guidelines are best practice after an ACDF. For those who are not familiar with an ACDF, what is it? How common is it? And what are the indications for this type of surgery? My name is Jessica Evaristo. I was involved in this case actually as a student, participated in an orthopedic residency. This was actually my research project. So the surgery is called the anterior cervical discectomy infusion. Now, Basically, what that means is the anterior part of that is just the approach with which the surgeon approaches the surgeries. It's one of the most common cervical spine surgeries, and uh, nationally, approximately about 132,000 are performed each year, and not very much research out there in terms of our role as physical therapist and post-operative rehab. The surgeon would remove the cervical disc in between the vertebral bodies at specific imaging-related levels. Certain cases, such as our patient here, where there are additional parts to that included, including foraminotomies, as well as dissection of some of the ligaments here, which in our patient, it was the posterior longitudinal ligament as well. The goal of the surgery is, is just to decompress the nervous tissue or the nerve roots there that are correlating with some of the symptoms. So there is some removal of the disc material, as well as replacement there with either an autograft or an allograft. And then basically the decision as to whether or not to place the plate there to fixate for the fusion part of it is based on whether or not there's any posterior instabilities. Our focus was on patients with cervical radiculopathy with progressive neurogenic symptoms, but it can also be indicated, you know, in in patients with vertebral body fractures, any type of dislocation with or without fracture, 
and then other conditions such as myelopathy or spondylosis. Hey, it's Joe Darian. I was the first author on this paper. I didn't see the patient, but basically was involved in everything that happened after that. I just wanted to, to add in that the best way to think about this procedure for me is I always think about it like it's a it's a jack on a car, right? You're, you're lifting up the two vertebra- vertebral bodies apart from each other to increase the space in the foramina on either side. And then if there's anything protruding into the central canal, that's where the discectomy helps to pull that away so that there's not as much pressure on the anterior side of the spinal cord. Anterior is often a good way to go because it's easier to get a restoration of the normal lordosis compared to a posterior spinal fusion. So this is Justin Lane. So um, really the only thing I would, I would really add is that with these procedures, a lot of times people think you just go to surgery when PT doesn't work. The, the big thing to understand with this is that while PT not working is one piece of, of this, you know, we also have to look at progressive neurological deficit and we have to look at why the patient's come in. The patient's just coming in with, with any kind of paresthesia or just, you know, uh, ridiculous symptoms. Is that different from progressive weakness in the arm or progressive myelopathic symptoms? How was this patient before the operation? How do they present? You know, so, so he was a 61-year-old male construction worker. So he worked with heavy machinery. You know, I actually saw him post-surgery. We talked a lot about it because I think one of the most important things when you start doing your evaluation or your initial consultation postoperatively, it's really to understand what brought the patient in preoperatively. He had, I think we said like around 15 years of, of intermittent neck pain, paresthesias uh, down his arm, but he kind of blew it off. You know, he's, he, was, uh, he was a tough guy, you know, and, and so he's like, you know, I don't need to see anybody about that. But I would say within the past two years before the procedure, he started to notice a new symptom, and that was progressive arm weakness. Progressive arm weakness is bothersome due to the fact that, you know, this could indicate there's, there's actual compression of the nerve root versus just irritation of the nerve root. And so when you're starting to see that and he's getting motor loss, it brought him in to start seeing somebody. Past medical history was, it was involved. He did have hypertension. He did have hyperlipidemia. He had uh, renal cell cancer. He had an episode of squamous cell cancer. And he did have history of anxiety, which was controlled. Again, he was more concerned about the weakness. That was the big thing. And I can't get back to work. I can't do the things I need to do. And so that's what got me into here. When he was having the progressive symptoms early on before this, when he got his MRI, it demonstrated a C5, C6, and C6, C7 left neuroforaminal compression on his nerve roots, which lined up exactly uh, with what, how he was presenting clinically. Post-surgery, he was still having posterior neck pain. He was still having some paresthesias, albeit they were improved. And he was still having some weakness. He was feeling better, but he, he wasn't where he wanted to be. Post-operative physical therapy is not just about exercise. It's about getting the patient to where they need to be. Hey, I can't get back to work. It wasn't just, hey, I had weakness and pain. And so that was really, really important, our decision-making of kind of how do we want to approach this because he wasn't where he thought he should be, even though the surgery was successful. It wasn't infected. It was stable. He didn't have any kind of comorbid conditions that were affected. He continued to have pain with with cervical rotation, head movements, had really a lot of difficulty sleeping, laying down on his back. He said that really the only things could help him was rest and really not using his arms as much. And then, you know, going through his physical exam, he tended to have, you know, limited range of motion. He had a little bit of, I would say a little bit of fear avoidance, but I think that was mostly due to the fact that he was worried about what the heck do I do in this rehab thing versus am I going to be okay? And, and am I going to ever get my arm back? 
myotomes, dermatomes were affected in the, in the observed nerve roots where he had the surgery. So we have someone here that is postoperatively looking like they're having a good outcome. It looks like the nerve symptoms are improving, but they still have a lot of pain. They, they can't sleep well. They have limitations with rotation. They have a lot of musculoskeletal neck pain, even though the nerve symptoms seem to be improving. So it's not somebody who's just looking to be able to walk around their house, go up and down stairs. This guy needs to get back to a manual labor job. The authors kind of broke things down into an acute inflammatory phase, weeks kind of one to two postoperatively, a proliferative reparative phase, that's weeks three through six, and then a remodeling maturation phase, so weeks six through 12. And why don't we start with that acute inflammatory phase? Can you just kind of walk us through what, what your thought process was and why you kind of built this plan of care the way that you did? You know, when we talked about our initial question of cervical fusions and not knowing how to rehab these, there's no evidence, right? You know, it got me kind of thinking about why does not anybody know anything about this, but then we know so much about like an ACL. We know the graft strengths that are used. We know the type of approach. We know the type of patient. I was very surprised to kind of see that this doesn't exist for us. And to think how complex a postoperative rehab is for a spine surgery, we don't only have type of surgery, so the ACDFs. We have the type of patient, which we know there's there's tons of preoperative factors that lead to poor outcomes. There's also preoperative factors that lead to good outcomes. But then we also have to think about the comorbidities of the, of the patient. We have to think about you know the actual activities. So we call them like patient-related factors. But then there is all the surgical related factors as well. You know, what kind of hardware was used? What kind of construct was used? Was it an autograph or an allograft? Were there different types of bone morphogenic proteins that were used to help speed up the fusions? All these different pieces from the surgical factors also played a hand. What's the best way that we think we can approach this where it would make sense from a physiology standpoint, biology standpoint, but then also from a patient-centered standpoint? We looked at where he wants to be. And then we looked at what we were actually dealing with as far as like the actual MRI, the surgical procedure, and kind of going through all the evidence that we could find as much as we could on bracing, on exercise, on manual therapy, and kind of going through all these different approaches. When we're dealing with a surgery like ACDF, we're not just dealing with bone healing, we're also dealing with skin and wound healing. We're also dealing with soft tissue healing. We're also dealing with a graft healing all of those different tissues have different tissue healing timeframes. Something approachable that you could educate your patients on as early as we did, which is two weeks postoperatively, knowing that there is there there at least seems to be some benefit, at least in intervening earlier, even if that means not necessarily approaching the neck specifically, still operating under the the goal of preserving the integrity of the surgery as well as in you know maximizing their their gains but also just our piece as educators in terms of safe progression of a physical therapy program as well as just our role as really great monitors for any type of adverse effects that may come up early on in those initial six to eight weeks of healing, you know, there's still a risk of DBTs, PEs, as well as infection, wound dehiscence, and all sorts of other complications. So that's kind of why we laid it out in a more tissue healing based timeline. Thank you, Jessica. That was great. Can you walk through for the listeners, some of the interventions that you were doing during this early time frame? And why they were in this early, why you put them into this kind of early acute inflammatory phase. We do have a couple of RCTs that look at ACDF rehab. When you have 
sort of a lack of specific research details that you can work off of, then what you come down to is your what you know best as a PT, which is your anatomy, your biomechanics, timelines of healing, and your clinical reasoning. So the the goals of this first phase were to try to help calm post-surgical pain. Oftentimes, this posterior neck pain and muscle spasm is common after these these types of surgeries. Part of this case was that it was early initiated. So two weeks is early compared to initiation of most PT. So the focus here was to calm post-surgical pain, calm muscle spasm, not really get into any range of motion of the neck or any kind of stretching because we are waiting for fusion to occur, for healing to occur, help the patient feel a little better, provide some strategies without too much movement of the neck that can still help get them moving and get their muscles loosening back up. So this was, you know, education on icing, education on how to wean from the collar slowly over time, to do self-scar mobilization once the scar was fully closed, prevent any, any adhesions happening there, and then to start working on the muscle groups that were weakened by the neurological weakness now that the pressure has been taken off those nerves. So getting the patient doing some, you know, supine triceps extensions or some shoulder flexions, elevations to, to work on the, those different myotomes and muscle groups. And just high enough to, you know, we stopped at 90 degrees in this case because the patient had some symptoms with going overhead. They started to get muscle pain in their in their shoulders or upper trap area. And so we, we went to their pain tolerance. As a reader, when you look at these charts, don't think you need to do every single intervention that's on here. You know, triceps extension was picked specifically because he had a C, part of his radiculopathy was C7. That's that's the, you know, elbow extension is the myotome. So getting those muscles to fire again was part of that process. So you might pick something different if you had a patient with a C5 radiculopathy. And then getting the patient back on some shoulder stretching, so pectoralis stretching, but also cardiovascular exercise to help with stress management, His get some happy chemicals, some endorphins releasing get his body used to moving again because we know that in the long run he has this big big goal of getting back to some pretty heavy duty stuff that's a really really great point they were specific to this individual patient and where their radiculopathy was exactly yeah is there anything else you want to touch on phase one before we we jump into to phase two there is plenty that you can do in the early phase. And, and i think one thing i've heard from both physical therapists as well as spine surgeons is well what can physical therapy do for a patient that early like, why would I send them? You're probably just going to, you know, they can't exercise their neck. What are you doing? We're trying to give you guidance as far as how to manage this patient early on. And so, and we're showing you through this case report that it can be done as safe as a safe procedure as early as, as two weeks at, on an individual basis here. Yeah. So th this is Chris again, and you mentioned in the article a little bit about the interdisciplinary approach. Could you give us a little more detail on, on your communicative strategies? What I tend to do with most of my patients, especially post-operative patients, is when I'm seeing them uh, on the schedule for a consult, I'll, I'll kind of go through and see who the who the referring surgeon is. You know, I, I don't like to just kind of walk in and kind of email in a collaborative model and just say, hey, uh, uh, what should I do? What should I do? If I'm just emailing, kind of go, what should I do? What should I do? You know, they're referring to us largely because they expect us to know what to do because we're the pros at this, not them. And I've been told by multiple surgeons that we're the ones doing rehab. So they thought that we would know when to do all that stuff. You know, initiating an email to kind of say, well, hey, we're seeing this patient. We saw that the procedure was on this date. They underwent this procedure at this time. There's a certain amount of weeks out presenting today. I saw there was no complications during the surgery. Typically with these patients, they, they can involve braces or no braces. What is your preference on, on that bracing? Because obviously the evidence doesn't state either one way or the other. And based on the procedure, was there anything during the operation that would lead to certain types of restrictions? And if so, when do we yield those restrictions? 
And, and I think that's a collaborative way of doing it because it's not so much of just asking, hey, what should I be doing? But it's asking for an explanation because I, as Jess said, there are no definitive guidelines to say six weeks, 12 weeks, no bending, lifting, twisting. There's nothing in the literature, especially with cervical spine that can say that right now. And speaking with the surgeon, uh, it was a great response because he was kind of like, oh, well, yeah, nothing actually did go wrong in the surgery. You know, yeah, you can discontinue the brace as soon as you see fit. That's where the true collaboration came. I'm outside of the the university academic environment, and it's not always easy to even begin a conversation or get in contact with the operating surgeon. And so that's just a, a great example of how you can open up that dialogue. All right, I think we're moving on to phase two here. This is weeks three through six postoperatively. This is the proliferative reparative phase. Still at week three to six, we are still primarily concerned with whether or not our patient is going to achieve fusion adequately enough to progress into the later stages of rehab. We're still primarily acting as monitors of our patient's overall clinical presentation, and I think this speaks a lot to our role, regardless of if you are in an academic setting with a pretty good line of communication with the surgeon and if you're not, because at this point, we're really concerned with what looks normal and what does not look normal. So again, we're still keeping in mind the patient's goals of getting back to function. We're still keeping in mind that in order to adequately heal from any type of surgery, we we do want better perfusion to those tissues, especially with the nervous tissue. Yes, the surgeon has removed the physical compressive factors to the nerve roots and the nerve tissue, but we know from a nerve healing perspective, we want better microcirculation and better perfusion to that nerve tissue to accelerate that healing. So the elliptical, as well as just some of the pec stretching that we got into is mainly, can we maintain the overall nervous tissue mobility and can we increase that perfusion to the tissue through exercise, as well as just considering the patient's pretty significant comorbidities? Can we improve overall their aerobic capacity in this interim period where we're not really able to do as much as he would like? And then we incorporated a little bit of the manual therapy that we mentioned here, largely based on some of those trigger points or patient-specific muscle spasm areas. And then in terms of the overall education, we were mainly waiting for when we would get that evidence of healing at week six. If you are a clinician that doesn't have access to those radiographs at that time, at the end of the day, it's still useful information to keep track of their overall symptom presentation so that if there is something that looks outside of your norm, that you do take that extra step to get in contact with the appropriate either surgeon or or physician, just so that your patient isn't stuck in limbo waiting for their six-week follow-up when there could be something potentially on the more red flag or complicated factor that could be uh, impeding their healing process. Exercise is his medicine and manual therapy is his surgery, right? And that's, I think, a good analogy for not everybody needs both things. Not everybody needs one or the other. And if you don't do enough exercise, you're not going to get the effect that you want out of it. If you do too much, you're going to have side effects. And the manual therapy is sort of the same idea, right? It needs to be matched to the right patient. 
as far as the rest of this phase goes, the patient was progressing as as we liked clinically. He didn't get the next set of radiographs until six weeks, but you know symptoms were reducing in terms of the muscle spasm. He was able to tolerate more range of motion, added some weight to some of the exercises he was doing. The other thing that you'll see, which is again sort of specific to this patient, is actually some passive range or some passive mobilization for shoulder flexion. He had a lot of pain trying to get his arm overhead. One of his areas that was assessed to be hypomobile was his glenohumeral joint. So if you think about just the biomechanics, if if your glenohumeral joint doesn't have enough mobility, try to get your arm overhead, other things are going to work harder, including probably upper trap and some of those scapular cervical muscles. So this is where you're managing the whole patient. So for our listeners who don't have this case in front of them, this phase consisted primarily of progressive supine strengthening for the affected myotomes, pectoralis stretching, soft tissue and scar mobilization, as well as nerve mobilizations and progressive cardiovascular duration and intensity. We're going to break down this episode into two parts with a more in-depth discussion of nerve glides, as well as a breakdown of phase three on our next episode. I'd like to thank all of the authors as well as Chris, not only for joining us today, but for all of the work they put into this phenomenal case. And once again, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to JSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm